Awesome. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome out to the third part of a conversation that we have been in about God and politics that we've been calling Citizen. And so as Sarah Beth mentioned uh, just a moment ago, if you are a guest with us this morning, or this evening, still got used to that, if that is your first time out here, thanks so much for being here. And, uh, and, and really, uh, kind of like we mentioned before, this is the third part of a conversation that we started. So we've actually had two weeks previous in this series. And so I would just encourage you, if you are a guest with us this evening and you missed the first couple parts of this conversation, we would really, really encourage you to go back and to maybe check those out that would actually be to your advantage. Uh, what we've been saying in this series is we've been saying that this is really uh, one long conversation that extends through four weeks. And so to take any one week of this series in isolation to the other weeks uh, might be a little bit incomplete. And so we would encourage you, if you're a guest with us tonight, uh, maybe to go onto our website, to our podcast. You can uh, check out that. You can watch that, subscribe to our podcast. All of that is for free and is for you, and so that might help you uh, make sense of what we're talking about in this um, series. But basically, kind of in a nutshell, uh, what we are talking about in this series, obviously, is this, this really tense but fascinating conversation about God and politics. And the big question that we've been investigating through this series is, man, how does a person of faith, how does a person of faith navigate through the political landscape? And we said that's an ambiguous, a confusing, and even a hotly debated topic and so really our approach has been, why don't we look at the Bible together and let's try to get a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches about God and politics. And so in our third week, as we continue this investigation, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles if you got them. Today, we're going to look together at Romans chapter 13. All right, so as we continue our conversation in this uh, in, uh, God and politics, in this citizen conversation, uh, today we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 13. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here, and so you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and get to Romans 13. And let me just say as well that if you didn't bring a Bible with you this evening, uh, that's not a problem. You can go ahead and uh, you can actually grab one of ours if you want to. If you don't have a Bible app or if you don't have a, a smartphone or tablet, you can grab one of our Bibles, and you're going to go ahead and go to page 790 in those Bibles that we have provided for you. You, that's where you're going to find Romans 13. Okay, so go ahead and get there. As you're turning to Romans 13, uh, let me just start here. So one thing that I would say is probably true about me, if I could classify myself, I would call myself a quote guy. I, I love quotes. I, I always have loved quotes. I'm kind of a nerd about them, uh, but I, I actually collect quotes, and so I've done that for a long time. So as I'm reading or as I'm talking to people or as I listen to different leaders and speakers, one of the things I like to do is I, I have an ongoing document on my computer, and it's literally dozens of pages long of just quotes and about anything. I just love quotes. And the thing I love about quotes so much personally is I think that a great quote, in my opinion, a great quote is a quote that says the most amount of truth in, in the fewest amount of words. I think that's what a great quote does. It's the most amount of truth condensed down in the fewest amount of words. It has the ability to cut through ambiguity and confusion and to add clarity and get to the heart of a matter in a hurry. Right? That's what I love about quotes. So just as a kind of an example of what I'm talking about, I'll just give you a few of my favorite quotes, just for fun. Here's a few of my favorite ones. Um, this one, uh, the first one I gave you, comes from a guy named Louis Smeads. Louis Smeads is a journalist, and I remember I actually read this quote for the first time when I was in my early 20s, and when I read it, it cut right to my heart. And uh, this, is, this is what he said. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. And I remember for myself, when I first read that quote, I think I said it was in my 20s, it added so much clarity. What a great quote, right? There you have so much truth, such profound truth, packed into such a few amount of words. That's what great quotes do. 
So much truth packed into that. Here's another one I like. This one comes from Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, right, one of the most quotable people um, in history. He said this. He said, success is the ability to go from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And that quote has been a refuge to me several times in my life, right? Success is the ability to go from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. So, so witty, so witty, so much truth packed into one consolidated statement. Uh, This one's from Mark Twain. Mark Twain, again, extremely quotable, right? Here's what he said. He said, the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. That is awesome right there. I remember when I read that, I thought, there's there's so many ways that you could say that, but he, he chose such a witty, wise way. So much truth packed in that one little bite-sized phrase. This one comes from Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt said, this is a great quote. He said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. (laughs) See, again, I'm just like, man, so much truth packed into that one little statement. I love that. You know, just just stuff like that. This one, my my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, said this. This is so awesome. He said, you want to know how good bacon is? To improve other food, they wrap it in bacon. He said, bacon is the best. Even the frying of bacon sounds like applause. <laughs> and I was like, so true. You know, so much truth because bacon is from heaven. And it's just absolutely right. They kind of have that. And I, I love quotes because they have a way of just cutting right to the heart of the matter. And of course, this is going to come to no surprise to you. My guess is you guys probably already have come to this conclusion. But I believe, honestly, that the greatest, most quote-worthy person in the universe uh, that the person who had the ability to cut to the heart of the matter uh, with, with his words in such a way that would leave his opponents amazed in, in, like none other was Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, when you read through the Gospels, even if you're a person that's not a Bible person or if you're not a believer in Jesus, you can't get around how incredibly insightful and witty and smart Jesus was. Uh, oftentimes people would try to trap him or they would try to uh, catch him in his words and he would oftentimes say sound bites. He would oftentimes um, say truth in such a way that it would leave those who surrounded him in awe and in amazement. And of course, what we've been doing in this series as it relates to this topic of God and politics, one uh, that has a lot of ambiguity and a lot of confusion that surrounds it, is we've been looking at a passage of the Bible uh, that you guys might remember I've been saying, I believe, is the most profound, potent statement about God and politics in the entire scripture. In fact, in my opinion, in all of the history of all mankind. And the most powerful and potent statement about God and politics came from Jesus Christ, and it came in a conversation that he was with when two two groups of opponents came to Christ to try to trap him. If you were with us in the weeks past, you might kind of remember the context, but basically two groups came to Jesus, they were trying to trap him in his words, and they asked him a very political question. They said, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we? In other words, what they said was, Jesus, should we as people of faith support a corrupt government that cuts up against everything we believe or shouldn't we? And Jesus went on to answer their question in one of the most unexpected and one of the most brilliant ways. And we've been looking at this passage together, but I'll just show it to you real quick on the PowerPoint again. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. He said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And and the Bible tells us that after Jesus said this, that the two groups of people who were his opponents were left in amazement, that they literally sat there in wonder and admiration of the words that Jesus said, that when Jesus said this truth, this short little tweetable truth to these guys, that it created such an impact on them that it introduced them a brand new way of thinking about God and politics, so much so that they were left Amazed, And what we've been saying in the series is we said that that statement is so powerful, that statement is so potent, 
that statement is so profound that we want to take the entire series to unpack the truth that lies behind it. Now, that, that little statement we said, that little statement that was said 2,000 years ago is equally as profound and is equally as significant in our cultural setting today here in 21st century America in October before the presidential election of 2016. That statement is just as significant to us today as it was when it was first spoken 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we said we want to take this whole series and kind of unpack what did Jesus mean when he said give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's. What is God? Because we said, we believe that it has the power to possibly introduce us to a brand new way of thinking about God and politics. So last week, if you were here, what we did in the second week was we really kind of zoomed in and we focused on the second part of that statement. We talked all about what did Jesus mean when he said to give to God what belongs to God? So we kind of double clicked on that. We zoomed in on that and we kind of unpacked what does that mean? And again, I would really encourage you, if you missed last week, you're going to want to go back and check that out. I I might even say that that might have been the most foundational piece of this entire conversation. So you're going to want to go back and check that out. This week, what we want to do is I want to zoom in on the first part of that statement. I want to talk about now, what does it mean in in our cultural setting to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? What, 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 what is the truth that lies behind what Jesus means when he says that a follower of Christ, that a person of faith, is someone who should give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Now, uh, to do that, this is where Romans 13 comes in. So the reason I ask you to turn to Romans 13 is because what you're going to find in Romans 13 is the Apostle Paul is going to take this idea that Jesus first um, kind of introduced us to, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what is God's. And he is going to expound on this idea for the entire chapter of Romans 13. Okay, so we're going to have a whole bunch of great stuff in this passage about how a follower of Jesus, and of course I know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but this passage is going to show us how a follower of Jesus should interact with the political structure and the governmental authorities that God has provided for them. There is incredible clarity in this passage. So let me tell you, before we jump into Romans 13, kind of our attack strategy. So here's what I'm hoping to do. As we go through Romans 13, what we're going to see is we are going to see four uh, ways in which the person of faith should view and interact with politics. Okay, that's what we're going to find. We're going to find four ways that a person of faith, that a follower of Jesus, and again, I know not everyone in this room may be a follower of Jesus, but we're going to see four ways that a follower of Jesus um, should, and, should interact and view uh, politics and governmental authorities, four ways. And so my hope is that what, this week what we're going to do is we're going to look at two of those ways. And then next week what we're going to do is we're going to look at the other two. And then at the end of the series, I want to give some very practical thoughts to how do these four ways that we are to view politics, how do those help inform the way that we vote in this presidential election? Okay, so we'll do that a little bit next week. But today we're just going to look at two of them. So let's just jump right in. Let me give you the first way. Okay, the four ways that a Christian, that a person of faith should interact with or view politics or, or, or view the governmental authorities. Here's the first one. It's this, is providentially. Okay. How does a person of faith view governmental authorities in the po- political structure that we have? First and foremost, we're going to find in Romans, is providentially. Providentially. Now, what do I mean by that? All right, well, let's just take a look at Romans 13 together. Okay, look at verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Let everyone be subject, subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. 
Okay, so these are some pretty powerful verses. We just pause there for a second. Pretty loaded, powerful verses. But what I want you to draw your attention to first is I want you to notice that in these two short verses, three times the Apostle Paul draws our attention to the fact that it is God who has established and instituted the governing authorities. Notice three times he says God has established the authorities. He says that the authorities exist because God has established them. He says that if you rebel against authorities, you're rebelling against what God has instituted. Three times in two verses, the Apostle Paul tells us the authorities that God has given us, the governing authorities, the political system that is over top of us, he says that has been provided to us, it has been given to us, it has been, it has been established, it has been instituted by God. God is the one who provided that. It's interesting, um, in all three of those occasions that were mentioned up there, the Greek word that's used to talk about established or instituted is actually the same Greek word. It's this word, uh, uh, this word tasso. And that word's going to be really important as we go through this re- the rest of this passage. But basically what tasso means is it means to ordain. It means to, uh, to organize or to administrate something, to set something up. And so the Bible says God is the one who sets up govern- governing authorities. God is the one who sets up political structures over top of those who lead us, all right? Now, what does that mean then? Practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means this, that contrary to popular belief, that politics and government are not from the devil, all right? It means that contrary to popular belief, that politics are not the spawn of Satan, all right? And I think many of us, that might be news to us. It means that, that politics and government are not a necessary evil, that they're not in their essence broken and corrupt things, but they are in their essence intended to be good things that are given to us by God. In fact, did you know this? Did you know that the very first time the idea of politics shows up in the Bible is before sin and evil even entered the world? Did you know that? Where's the first place that we see politics show up? You know where? It's in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's the very first time this idea of politics shows up in Scripture. What happens in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, I'll just kind of summarize for us. But some of you guys know, in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible says that God created all things. And the Bible tells us that God created certain institutions and God created certain kind of certain uh, yeah, institutions, I guess you could say, that he put into humanity that were good for society and were good for us. And so, for example, in Genesis 1 and 2, before there was sin and before there was evil, God says that, uh, the Bible says that God created marriage. Marriage shows up in Genesis 2. You see the very first marriage and you see human sexuality show up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, before sin and before evil even enter the world. That was an institution that God created. He said, this is good for society and this is good for humanity. And he created it in the beginning and it was good, right? Another institution that we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that God created work, that work was intended to be a good thing, that God gave humanity responsibility and that that was something that was intended to be an act of worship to God and it was for our betterment and it was for the sake of society. And another thing that you see in Genesis 1 and 2 from the very beginning is that in the beginning, God gave politics. He gave politics. You're like, what do you mean? You guys remember in Genesis chapter one what God said after he created the world and after he created humanity? He created the world and then he came to Adam and Eve and he said, I made everything in the world. It's latent with potential. And he says, and now it's yours. And he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, I want you to subdue the land and I want you to rule over it, 
right? And so basically what God does is he gives authority and he gives, he gives uh, administration and he, he gives those things to humanity in order that they might subdue and rule over the land. And you guys, that is by definition what politics is. What is politics? The word politics, as many of you guys know, comes from the, comes from the, word, the Latin word polis, which means city. And basically it means to administrate and oversee the affairs of a city. That's what it is. And so God looked at Adam and Eve and he said, I want to grant you authority that you would subdue and that you would rule over the earth. That's politics. And so in the very beginning, there was politics. Well, as you guys know, by Genesis chapter 3, only three chapters into the Bible, humanity totally screwed it up, right? And we disobey God and we sinned against him. And the Bible says that now everything that God originally intended to be good has been tainted and skewed by sin. And so today, marriage has been tainted and has been skewed by sin. Human sexuality has been tainted and skewed and, ha- and has been perverted in many ways um, by sin. Uh, work has been tainted by sin. It, it's become difficult and, and laborious now in a, in a very unhelpful way. And in the same way, politics, which was intended to be good in the beginning, has become tainted and it has been skewed by sin. But listen, just because it's been tainted and skewed by sin doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Just because, just because marriage currently is difficult and is hard because of human sin that's involved in it, just because maybe you came from, a, maybe your, your first marriage failed or your second marriage failed, that doesn't mean that we give up on marriage. That, that, the problem was never marriage. The problem was sin. That was the problem. And so we don't throw out marriage. It's just because sin is a problem. Same thing with human sexuality, Right? We, just, just because sexuality has become perverted from where God wants it to be doesn't mean that we're anti-sex. No, we're very pro-sex. I've said it many times here at the Medina East Campus. We are extremely pro-sex. If you don't believe me, look at our children's ministry. It is growing leaps and bounds, right? So we're pro-sex. And, and so we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And you guys, the same thing is true about politics. Just because politics are corrupted and are tainted by sin doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. doesn't mean we give up on it because it's something that God originally intended to be good. So in the beginning, there was politics. So that means this. If you're a person that's like, politics, I hate politics, man. I just, I just, it has nothing to do with God, and I just think politics are terrible, and they're from the devil. Look, you're wrong, okay? Politics were God's idea. It, was, it, was, it flows from God, is what Scripture tells us, that this was something, politics and governing authorities are something that God has provided for our good and for our benefit. And so that's what we see here um, in, the, in, uh, in the book of Romans. Look at this next part. Look at verse 3. He says this. He says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. Okay, let me just pause there for a minute. What the Apostle Paul is saying here, by the way, is just a real obvious generality. And what he's saying is, look, if you just do the right thing, you don't need to be afraid of authorities, okay? If you do, basically, what he's saying is what I tell my kids. I'm never going to ground you for cleaning your room. Right? If you clean your room, that's a great thing. I'm never, you're never going to get in. Generally speaking, that is true with our authorities. If you do the right thing, you're not going to get in trouble. In other words... Um, you're never going to get pulled over for obeying the traffic laws, right? A cop is never going to pull you over and say, uh, pardon me, is there a reason you're not in a hurry tonight? Right? That's just not going to happen, right? And, and that's basically what Paul's talking about here. He's like, listen, you can, if you obey the authorities and you do what's right, generally speaking, things are going to go well for you. There's going to be peace for you. And then he goes on 
in verse 4. I want you to notice what he says. He says, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment upon the wrongdoer. I want you to notice something Paul says. This is very peculiar what Paul says. I want you to notice two times, once again, in this little passage, he tells us that authorities, the governing authorities, the political leaders that God has provided for us are his servants. So, so three times already, Paul has told us um, that the governing authorities, the political system that we have has been given to us by God's providence. And now twice he says those who are in places of political authority those who are in places of governing authorities, he says they are placed there by God and they are God's servants. Now, some of you, I know already, you might be thinking to yourself, but that presents a problem. Like, like I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that all leaders and public officials would view themselves as God's servants. And we all know that some leaders don't even believe in God. Some of them uh, are, are unethical. Some of them don't care about the good of other people. They care about the good of themselves. Some of them do terrible things. We look through history. Uh, some leaders have done awful, atrocious things. And so we know that this is not always true when the Bible says that these leaders are God's servants. But I think what he's getting at is this, is that biblically speaking, whether leaders are willing or unwilling to admit it, all leaders are used by God to accomplish his purposes in his sovereignty. For example, do you guys know in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king over Babylon. It was the, the biggest empire in that world. And in, in the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, he didn't fear God. He didn't fear anyone. He didn't worship God. He worshiped pagan gods. And even more than that, he worshiped himself. Built a giant statue of himself and told people to worship it. And you know what God calls Nebuchadnezzar? calls him my servant. He says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. He doesn't know it, but I'm using Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish my purposes, to accomplish my will, to accomplish my desires on this earth. That's what God would say. You know what God says about Pharaoh in the Old Testament? You guys know Pharaoh, right? Egypt, the most, the most heinous, most evil empire in the Old Testament. Uh, Pharaoh who held the Israelite, the Israelite people, God's people in slavery, uh, Pharaoh who, who slaughtered uh, millions of babies uh, of the Jewish people as a way of population control so they wouldn't revolt against him. You know what God says about him? He says, he's my servant. He's my servant. He says, I'm going to use him. Well, he don't know it. I'm going to use him, though, a as a way to glorify myself, as a way to deliver my people, and as a way to accomplish my purposes and my plan in this world. And so the Bible says all leaders... Whether, they're, whether they know it or not, whether they're ethical or not, whether they're willing or not, are used by God in his hands to accomplish his, his purposes. And so it's for that reason, then, the Bible says that we need to view the governing authorities and the political systems that God has placed over us, we need to view them providentially. They're from God. God has put them in place. God is accomplishing his purposes through them. Sometimes that's clear. Sometimes that's unclear to us. But God is always working. He is sovereign over the nations and he gives them to whomever he chooses. And so as a result of that, the Bible tells us then that anyone who's in a place of um, governmental authority is a servant on God's behalf. And so for that reason, I just want to pause here for a minute and just say that if you are a person in any way that serves as an authority in our community, uh, if you serve in any local government, if you serve in law enforcement, if you serve um, in, in any 
in any political realm in any way, can I just do something really, really rare right now? It's probably not very, it's not happening very often right now in our culture. And can I just say thank you? Can I just say thank you for what you're doing? Because you know what the Bible says about you? The Bible says that God is the one who provides the authorities and the structures that we have. And the Bible says that you're his servant, that you are used to accomplish his purposes for our good. That's a big responsibility. And so can I just tell you thank you for doing that? Thank you. That's a huge, yeah, seriously, it's a big deal. And um, unfortunately, I think we live in a society where it's way too easy to be cynical. And, and it's way too easy to be critical. And yet the Bible says, no, man, God is the one who provides these things. And those who serve in these ways are God's servants. And that's a huge responsibility. Because what you do with that leadership, you will give an account to God for. That's what the Bible talks about. In scripture. So how do, we, how do we view governmental authorities, the political system? Well, first off, the way we view it, the way we interact with it is providentially, providentially. Uh, secondly, secondly, what that means then is that the second way that we view and interact with government and politics according to the Bible, and this one's going to be a very unpopular word, but it's right out of the Bible, is this. We do it submissively, okay? We do it submissively. I know, I know very well that the word submit in our current cultural setting is probably worse than any four-letter word that you can think of, right? It is a very, very offensive word to bring up, and it oftentimes makes people very tense. This is not a very well-received word, but yet, I think it's often misunderstood because it's such an important part of what Scripture teaches. So let me show you what I mean. When the Bible says that we are to interact with our authorities, we're to interact with our political structure submissively. Right, so we talk about this. Look at verse 5. It says this. He says, therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience, right? So notice in this verse, he starts off, he says, therefore, uh, obviously he's referring back to everything he's just said, therefore, uh, in light of the fact that God is the one who has provided our governing authorities, he's, he's, uh, he's provided our, uh, our political structure, therefore, as a result of that, he says, it is necessary to, here's the word, to submit to the authorities that God has provided to us. Let me just talk about that little word. Like I said, it's not a real popular word in our culture, but it's such an important word, and I think it's important that we kind of understand what's behind it. Uh, the word submit, it's actually really fascinating, at least to me, um, is that in the original Greek language, the word submit is the word hupotasso, okay? Hupotasso. It's a really kind of a fun word to say. I know you want to say it, so why don't you go ahead, turn to your neighbor, and say, hey, hupotasso, all right? You go ahead and do that. I turn to your other neighbor and say, no, no, you hupotasso, all right? And give that a try. I know. Okay, so hupotasso. And hupotasso, you remember how earlier I told you that the word tasso was the word that was used for established or appointed? When the Bible says God established governments, when the Bible says that God instituted governments, the word that's used for that is tasso. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible says that God tassos governments that God tassos authorities, that he gives us those things. And so what's our response for those of us who follow Jesus? He says that our response is that we hupotasso. And the word hupotasso, hupo means to come underneath something. He says we are, to, we are to put ourselves underneath the tasso of which God has provided. God has tassoed the government. He has tassoed authorities. He has tassoed the political structure. And so what is our response? We hupotasso. We come underneath it is what he says. That's what the idea of submission means. Now, now it's fascinating. The word uh, hupotasso actually has an antonym 
And so there's an opposite of hupotasso, and that's actually used in verse 2. So I want you to glance back up at verse 2 with me for a minute and notice what he says. He says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Twice is the word rebel or rebelling. That's actually the word antitasso. Okay, so God tassos, tassos the government, tassos authorities, tassos those things. The response of a Christ follower, according to scripture, is that we hupotasso, we accept it from God and we come underneath it. And then he says, but don't antitasso. Don't resist it. Don't try to get yourself out from under it. But instead, he says, you need to willingly and purposefully and peacefully and respectfully put yourself underneath it. That's what hupotasso, this idea of uh, submitting is all about. Now, I know for some of you, even as I'm talking about this, you're like, dude, I'm confused. You're, you're talking Greek now. I'm not even sure what's going on. And so let, let, me try to, let me try to clarify the best that I can. I'll actually show you a visual to try to make it as simple as I know how to make it to help. It also helps me understand it too. All right, let me, let me just show you this first image real quick. Here's what the Bible says, okay? The Bible says that all authority comes from God. There is no authority that does not come from God. That's what the Apostle Paul just said. So at the top of this picture, you have God. At the bottom, you have us. And these arrows represent the authority of God. All authority comes down from God. That's what the Bible tells us. All authority, there is no authority that does not come from him. So it all flows from him. What the Bible says is that God has provided, if you go to this next picture, the Bible tells us that God has provided earthly authorities He's provided governing authorities. He's provided um, the uh, political systems that we have. He has provided those things as a, as a way. He has tassoed them for, for our good so that we could be under those things. All authority comes from God, and God has provided those things. Now, as a result of that, the Bible says then that our response, if you go to this next picture, our response is that we hupotasso. So we respond by willingly and, and respectfully putting ourselves underneath the, the leadership that God has given us. And so what we do is we submit to the leaders and authorities that God has put over us, not necessarily because they're always worth our submission and our respect, but not, not just because we're submitting to them, but because we're submitting to God through them. We recognize they're from God. And so because God wants me to submit to him, I'm gonna submit to you. Right? So is that making sense? So this is what the Bible says. This is what hupotasso is. So what does this mean, practically speaking? Here's what it means as it relates to you and I. Uh, the Bible talks about this idea of submission, by the way, in multiple different relationships. So some of you might remember the Bible says that children should submit to their, to their uh, parents, right? That God has tassoed parents to children. He has provided parents for children. And so children, out of reverence for God, submit themselves to their parents and in so doing, they submit themselves to God, as the Bible says. The Bible says within the family structure, with husbands and wives within the family structure, that God has given responsibility and leadership and authority, a heavy weight of responsibility, to lead their family to the husband. Husbands are to lead the families spiritually, emotionally, physically. It's a big responsibility that God has given. But the Bible says because of that, that the wife and the family are to submit to that. They're to hupotasso as unto God. They do that. The Bible says that all of us, every single one of us in this room, are to hupotasso to the governments and the authorities that God has provided. So what does that look like practically speaking? Well, it looks like this. Whenever our governing authorities legislate and whenever they enforce laws that are moral, it means we submit to them. So for example, if the government says, hey, don't kill people, 
we willingly, we willingly subject ourselves to that as an authority that's given to us, but it's a moral, we can agree to that pretty easily, right? When, the, when, when our authorities say, when they legislate laws that say don't steal, when they legislate laws that say, um, you know, don't commit fraud, we willingly and, and we peacefully submit ourselves to those things. But it also means this. It also means this. It means that when our authorities, our governing authorities, and those who are over, uh, over us legislate and enforce laws that are amoral. Do you guys know what amoral is? So there's moral and immoral, and then there's amoral. Amoral is like neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. So whenever our government enforces or legislates laws that are amoral, things that aren't evil or not evil, they're just whatever, it's a matter of preference. So things like traffic laws, uh, things like building codes, God hate them, right? Things like, um, like e even, even certain gun laws, right? those type of things. I know that might get me shot, but different gun laws, right? These are not issues of morality. They are amoral. And you know what the Bible says as a result of that? The Bible says in those areas, you have to hupotasso, man. Come underneath God because that's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for you. And what he's saying is don't antitasso, okay? If you go to this next picture, this is what antitasso would look like, okay? Antitasso is basically me saying I don't agree with my authorities. I don't like the, 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 the procedures and the, the rules and the administration that they have. I don't agree with it. Even though it's not immoral, they're not asking me to do anything immoral. I just don't like it. So I'm going to go around it, and I'm answer, I answer to God. I don't answer to no government. I answer to God. So I don't, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I don't agree with taxes. I think taxes are dumb. And so I answer to God. I don't answer to my government. Uh, the new gun laws, man, forget that. I'm going to take my guns. I'm going to hide them in my basement. I'm going to wait for freaking World War III. I'm going to be armed and ready, right? And look, the, the Bible would say, now don't do that. Now don't anti-tasso. Okay? Because when you set yourself up against the governing authorities, you are now resisting God. That's what the Bible would say. So an example on this, I want you to imagine, my, I have two boys, like I said, I want you to imagine my, my, my oldest son, I went to my oldest son and I said, buddy, I want you to clean your room. And my son looked at me and he said, dad, I don't answer to you, I answer to God. Now what do you think I would tell my son? I tell him a lot of things, right? <laughs> I tell him a lot of things. But, but you can see there's fundamentally something wrong with his logic because his logic says, I, I don't answer to you. I answer to God. And my response would be, nobody, you answer to God by answering to me. And if I'm not asking you to do anything immoral or unethical that goes against what Scripture teaches, then you have to hupotasso. That is God's will for your life. I have had so many teenagers and so many um, students come up to me in my time in ministry and say, man, I just really want to know what God's will is for my life. I just really want to know. And what they usually mean is, who should I date? I don't know if I should date this person or this person. I don't know if I should go to this school or this school, right? And oftentimes I'll tell them, I'll say, well, you know, that's a big conversation talking about God's will. But here's my first question. Is there any area in your life that you're not obeying your parents? Did you clean your room like your mom said? They're like, what does that have to do with God's will? Everything everything because that's God's will for your life. God has provided your parents to you that you might hupotasso them and that by doing that, you're responding to God, right? Now, I know the complaint on this one. Here's the complaint that people will make. They'll say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. But what if the authorities over me are unethical? What if the authorities over me are corrupt people who don't love God and they're mean and they're not worthy of my respect? Well, then what am I supposed to do? Listen, let, let me just say this. Jesus Christ told his followers, his disciples, 
to pay the Roman tax. Listen, the Roman tax to the Roman government, you guys, the Roman government was responsible for crucifying Jesus. The Roman government was responsible for killing almost all of the apostles, and Jesus told them to pay for it. He said pay taxes, not not because he agreed with, with necessarily all the decisions that they made, but because he understood if they're not asking you to disobey God, if they're not asking you to go against Scripture, then our role, for those of us who follow Jesus, is to hupotasso. Uh, Peter said the same thing in his setting. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said, man, you need to submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Do you guys know the context in which Peter wrote that? It, Emperor Nero was the one who was overseeing Rome at that time. Do you guys know anything about Nero? Nero was the guy who used to tar Christians and then put them on a pole and burn them to light his garden. That was a sicko. And Peter says, submit to him. And so I'm just saying, if, if Peter and Jesus are saying, you can hupotasso these government structures that are corrupt, you can hupotasso any government structure. L- listen, you guys. I know a lot of people um, looking at this election are like, man, if that person gets in office, our country is just going to be doomed. It's going to be so corrupt. It's, I mean, if Hillary gets in office, if Trump gets in office, our country is just, we are, we are just destined for destruction one way or the other. I can't support a corrupt government like that. And I'm just saying, if Jesus said, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's to the very government that crucified our Savior, then yeah, okay, we can hupotasso. We can come underneath a government because God's in control anyway. God, God is the one who's in control of these. So I don't know who's going to be president after the election on November 8th, but I do know this. I know that at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is going to be on his throne in heaven. He, he, he's overcome all other kingdoms. And he uses everyone, whether it's Trump or Clinton or whoever, he uses them as his servants to accomplish his purposes. And he will do that again. And he always has. And, and so the Bible tells us, you can hupotasso. You can, you can submit to these authorities, whether it's, whether it's moral, whether it's amoral. Now, that brings up the last question. And, of course, this is a question that comes up pretty often. People say, but yeah, but what if the government, what if my authorities ask me to do something that goes against what Scripture teaches? Well, in that case, it's real clear in the Bible that in that situation, uh, we are to obey God over man. Now, let me show you one last picture. So this is the picture of what would happen when authorities decide to go outside of God's, so all authority comes from God. And the Bible says that when authorities decide to go against what God teaches, that they've overstepped their jurisdiction. And, and so, if an authority tells you to do something that directly contradicts what Scripture teaches, uh, an example of that would be like in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, the Bible says that Peter and John were preaching about Jesus, and the authorities came and said, you guys need to shut up. No more teaching about Jesus. And remember what they said to him? Respectfully, we will not stop because we have to listen to God and not to you. We hupotasso to God. And because you're asking us to do something that he has, he has deliberately commanded us to do, we can no longer listen to you. We must listen to God and accept the consequences for that. Or if the government asks you to do something that contradicts what Scripture teaches. So another example of that would be like in, in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, in in chapter 3, came to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, you will worship me. You will bow down and worship me. And they said, we cannot do that. Because God has told us that we have to worship him and we can't worship anyone else. And as a result of that, they said, we're willing to accept whatever consequence. Respectfully, we will not. And so listen, as it relates to that, 
whenever our governing authorities or those who are above us or, or, or legislate or enforce laws that either directly contradict scripture or omit certain parts of scripture, uh, we have to respectfully say, no, I submit myself to God. I submit myself to God. That's what God wants. But by and large, by and large, right, 99% of the time, what ends up happening is that we just have to come into a, with an attitude of submission and providence that God has provided these authorities and we're going to submit ourselves under them regardless of what may come. Okay, so those are the first two in Romans 13. There are two more. And then last, next week, like I said, I want to talk a little bit more about how those will help mold and shape the way we view this election. But let me just end here. I'll ask, I'll ask the band to come up. And let me just end today's conversation with just, with just four very practical conclusions. Okay, so here's just four conclusions just to kind of sum up what we talked about. And number one, God establishes all governing authorities. Therefore, a person of faith must view authorities as providential. Okay? God establishes all authorities, just like we talked about. God is the one who establishes them. They come from God, and so as a result of them, for those of us who follow Jesus, we must view all governing authorities and political structures as those in which have been enforced by God. The second thing is this. A person of faith can submit to imperfect authorities, not simply because he or she is submitting to them, but because he or she is submitting to God through them. All right? So we, we, can, we can submit ourselves to imperfect people who have character flaws, who have leadership flaws, we can do that not because we're submitting to them so much as we're submitting to God through them and in our response in those things, okay? Number three, Christians should be good citizens. And I just say that Christians should be really good citizens. Tax-paying, law-abiding, hupotasso type of citizens. We shouldn't we shouldn't be the, the, the people when the sign says stay off the grass that we're like, oh, okay, I'm going to step on the grass. That shouldn't be us. We shouldn't have that, an attitude of cynicism and, re, and rebellion inside of us. And, and listen, what I'm saying, I'm not saying, by the way, that we should just acquiesce all the time and just be, just be willing to, to, you know, take... We, we live in an awesome country in which we can exercise our right to vote. We can exercise our right to free speech. And I think we should do those things but with gentleness and with respect. And we're going to talk about that next week a little bit too. All right, here's the last conclusion. Questions of how and when a person of faith should disobey the state should be thought through very, very carefully and with the study of scripture, reflection, prayer, and counsel. And I think that that's something we should take real seriously. If we ever come to a place where we say, you know what, government's asking us to do something that we cannot go along with because it contradicts scripture, and we better be praying about that, seeking counsel about that, trying to be as wise as we possibly can as it relates to those things, okay? At the end of the day, today, uh, two ways that a follower of Jesus views politics, interacts with uh, those things providentially and submissively. Next week, we'll look at the last two and then talk about how that helps inform this year's election. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, to do these things, we need your help. And uh, I got the truth is that... Um, that you provide for us the authorities and the structures that you have placed in our lives to accomplish your purposes and to accomplish um, your will. And God, as a result of that, we can rest. We can rest, even in the face of an uncertain election, even in, in, the, in, uh, in the midst of a time in our country where uh, we are facing a lot of uncertainty about what lies ahead. Father, those of us who follow you don't have to have the same sense of anxiety that others might have. Because we know that there's a real king, there's a true king who's on his throne, 
who's sovereignly in control of all things and who uses all leaders to accomplish the purposes that you have set ahead. And so, God, we can rest in your sovereignty in that. And as a result of that, Father, we can also uh, bring ourselves um, into submission. God, we can hupotasso. We can, we can come underneath the leadership that you've provided for us, trusting that you're accomplishing your work through it. Father, we know that there's, there, there's no political system on this earth that's going to bring about the change in the human heart that only you can bring about. And so because of that, we don't put our hope in politics. We don't put our faith in politics. But God, we realize that, uh, that, that what you've called us to do is to give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And so, Father, as we, we go from this place, I pray, Jesus, that you would give us wisdom to know what's right, to how to navigate the landscape that we face today. I pray you give us the courage to enact it and to live it out. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.